A few weeks ago, Hunter and I did an episode about a little device we were super excited about called the Analog Pocket. And the big thing from that episode was like, hey, here's this cool thing we like. You can't get one. And EJ here heard that episode and went, yeah, no, I get you. I still want one. Uh, And you went out and got something different. And I figured in the cold open, we could talk about EJ's adventures with the MiU Mini Plus. Oh, yeah. Me, you, (laughs) mini, plus. Me, you, mini. Me and you on the mini today. And that's what I want to talk about, which is a cheaper version of what you all received. Uh, Much cheaper, I would would imagine. And available. Uh, You got to just buy one. (laughs) Super available, actually. Here's the thing about uh, uh, buying these hardware emulators. Um, There's like a whole community around it. Yeah. Like there's like a whole, it's a whole thing. And... Uh, you can like watch a bunch of YouTube videos to try and pick out the one that like you know suits you yeah. best and is in your price range. Like there are there are more expensive and probably um, not probably definitely better uh-huh. emulators <laughs> than the MiU Mini Plus. But I was looking for something like under a hundred dollars, yeah. uh, something that was going to kind of fit in uh, my budget at the time or or now. And uh, yeah, I found this little guy, and he's such a sweet little boy. Um, <laughs> And I play him all the time. Yeah. Uh, um, how many hours have you racked up on your Miu Mini Plus? <laughs> I've had the Miu Mini Plus for a little over two weeks, and I've racked up 65 <laughs> hours on the Miu Mini Plus. EJ's going so hard <laughs> on Game Boy and SNES, uh-huh. and I don't know Dude, what else I, you've been playing. Oh, my I just, gosh. I got the thing and I was like, okay, how much am I actually going to play this? Um, And then like I started doing research on how to, the biggest thing, the reason I went with this was because it has like a a community made operating system uh, called onion. Uh, And this onion OS is what it's called. And this thing is really cool. Um, It, (laughs) um, it basically just makes the device better. Like the stock device was okay. I played with the stock device. But my understanding is the stock device is like, Android basically like it's just essentially yeah, it's a, running well, Android and okay is it yeah. Linux okay okay I might be thinking yeah of it's a, a Linux device product that's the the Android one mm-hmm. yeah it's the it's I can't think of the name of it off the top of my hand Amber Nick or something yeah, like Amber, that I a, think Amber Nick does uh does Android mm-hmm. stuff yeah yeah so there is like but this is a Linux product and so basically the community just took that and was like okay well, we're gonna make our own operating system on wow. it and that operating system rips and yeah. is worth basically the price of the device like on its own like you could probably pay 90 dollars for the operating system and be happier you know with just that but any anyways the device is really cool has this really cool community made os that's absolutely free um and i downloaded that i found a way to get a bunch of roms on there i basically started with just a few roms well you bought all of the games and then you downloaded the rom of the files games. from the games right. and then you put that's them on your Mi mini like everyone does them, in this scraped industry. all the pictures yep. that's exactly what i did <laughs> so i did do all of that first and then i have now have the roms you're right i'm sorry <laughs> i i misspoke um i forgot about the front work that i did uh, in order to have these files on my mm-hmm. On my MiU Mini Plus. But anyways, I've been playing a ton of, uh, just a ton of games. Uh, I've been playing a bunch of different, I mean, this thing emulates a bunch of different consoles. The biggest one, that the funniest one is the PS1. Yeah, that's um, insane. You're, you're I'm, We're talking about a device <laughs> that I've held EJ's. It is like the size of the palm of your hand. It's like the size is, of a Game Boy Pocket. 
or something. Yeah, so they actually had one that the the original device, this is the Miu Mini Plus. Okay. So the original device, the reason people loved it so much is it had like a 2.8 inch screen. I've done a lot of research on this, but it was <laughs> called the Miu Mini, the regular Miu Mini. Uh, and it is much smaller. This has like a 3.1 inch screen. Okay. Something about the screen size. All I know is that the, the, the other screen size doesn't, is not popular or in production essentially. Mm. Like the 2.8 size screens just yeah. don't exist. Huh. And so due to that scarcity, they had to make a new device essentially. So the MiU Mini Plus is really the only thing that they produce anymore. In that size. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. because the 2. Point, or whatever it is, 2.7, 2.8 inch screens yeah. uh, are basically like BlackBerry screens is what they were. Right. And I don't know if you know about BlackBerry, but not a super <laughs> popular uh, device these days. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore well man i'm just i'm i'm jealous because I you it. spent a third of the price uh and mm -hmm. got yours right away whereas hunter and i spent triple that two years ago and finally got ours now i, I will say uh, having checked yours out as well there is something hunter hunter really hyped the screen of the analog pocket and there is a difference yours mm -hmm. still has filters so you can still make it look kind of like a Game Boy and kind of like a Game True. Boy Pocket and all that. But there is actually, I, I didn't think it would be like this intense, but like what the analog pocket has is like the feeling that each pixel is genuinely an individualized right. LCD like pixel. Whereas yours is like an LED screen or whatever. Like it's it's, right. it's doing a very it's different simple. thing. So yeah. mine, when you hold it and you look at the screen, it genuinely looks like a Game Boy screen. Whereas EJ's looks like a 16-bit monitor or something like that um, with, with like a filter on it, which for me and my money, I would, I, that's fine. I would have just done that. <laughs> I think Hunter cares a little bit more about the like really preciseness of the analog pocket and not to mention the analog mm -hmm. pocket. Like if you do have Game Boy games, you can pop the real ones into it and play right. those. Your, yeah. EJ's isn't going to do that. But well, no, I had to get the real ones though. Yeah, so I, I do uh, want to be right. clear. You do I have the real ones, but you can't games. put the real ones in the thing. But you you download the real ones into the thing, and then you get the thing, and right. then you have the thing. Uh, no, I I am I've gotten really much more into the emulation. I think FPGA stuff is cool, and I'm glad it exists. And I would still love to get a Mister, basically. Uh, oh yeah. But I I think emulation has come such a long way in the last like 15 years. That like oh, I'm also yeah. really really okay with that and and to speak to uh, you saying that it's a Linux machine now makes total sense because that's the same situation as the Steam Deck and it's like it's just that Linux coding community man those people are nuts and they will make anything incredible for free <laughs> like the that, craziest people it is it is They're, really the wildest community out there they love doing it yeah. it's like a fun opera you know it's a fun coding yeah thing i believe like it's, it must be or else like right. why, How, would they, why would so much work get done into this stuff if it weren't like a, a joy to do or whatever for sure it must be like kind of simple too like yeah. it it can't be like so arduous and it's obviously people who really enjoy right. um just just working with their hands and providing like a service to the community it's things that they want already yeah and then they're just like yeah well let's just like crowdsource this thing and essentially for sure like get this thing well yeah because you know, especially too i feel like i feel like you you know pc gaming has always had a long history of like people making coded stuff but i think what you've seen a lot in the last five to ten years is that sense of like people making things that are deeply user-friendly like iphones right. took over and like nintendo like the way nintendo runs their consoles uh like it's such a big deal that it feels like steam deck and miu mini plus are both this like 
once you get the like we've made the operating system install super easy and it's then it's just button presses like it's not weird i remember old emulation stuff was like you kind of had to know how to get in the guts of that stuff oh, yeah. to do anything and they've just made everything so easy now so it's, it's just it's drag just and so drop cool. yeah exactly it's it's basically drag and drop like the biggest like i was worried whenever i first got it because i was like okay i'm gonna have to set up this operating system i have to have like this external um drive I have to, you know, do all of this stuff, yeah. essentially. Like, I had to download 7-Zip on my computer. Mm-hmm. Like, it just felt like it was going to be a lot. But then, like, once you do it, like, one time, yeah. essentially, you're like, oh, I know what BIOS files I need yeah. now. I know what ROMs go where. You know, right. I know how to do all of the things that I need to do in order to upkeep it. Yep. And then, like, then there's just the playing the games. Right. And it's like, like I said, it's just like, I could be doing anything. I'm sitting on my couch watching TV. Yeah. That, you know, this thing is there. It just... It just, I didn't realize Dude. how much nostalgia I would feel mm-hmm. um, wanting to like just play handhelds. Like yeah. I didn't realize how much I missed well, my, my old handheld and gaming That's stuff. the advantage of it being like genuinely pocketable, right? Is I'm not, and, and I know you're oh, walking yeah, around mostly your house, but it's like the idea that that thing is just so easy to just grab. Where, I mean, even my, even my Steam Deck, it's like I can walk around my yep. house with it, but it's like it's still a cumbersome thing to pick up <laughs> yeah. off the table and play for an right. hour. Whereas, yeah, these, these, both the analog pocket and the Miu Mini Plus, yeah, it's like you toss it on the side of the couch and then come back to it Dude. after you've made yourself a sandwich and you sit back down and you pick it back up. And it's just like this thing just sort of is like a slug trail in your house that's always right at arm's reach, basically. Yeah, and it's yeah, and like the fact that it has six hours, like I'm never gonna need more than six hours of battery. Yeah, right. That's it. crazy. So it's just like whatever. Like yeah. I'm never playing like more than like 45 minutes at a time. Game Boy games. <laughs> There's the Game right. Boy games aren't six right. hours long. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. So I don't need the full battery life of the thing. It still runs out of battery because of how much I play it. Right. But like, you know, I'm not playing these long sessions. It's yeah. just like, oh, I'll pick it up and then I'll put it down and then I'll go do something. Yeah. I'll like, you saw me. I brought it to a hockey game yeah. recently. Yeah. You know? I just had it. <laughs> it's like, I just put it in my pocket. I forgot I had it in there. And then yeah. I brought it to the hockey game and I was like, oh, I'll show Matt since yeah. I have it here. So it's amazing. Yeah. Super cool thing. Love it. Um, and like I said, it's a budget emulator. Yeah. It's very cool. Um, you should maybe look at it yeah. and invest in one if yeah. you're listening. And we shouted it out last cool. time, but I know you got a lot of your, you settled on it because primarily that retro game core. Uh, YouTube channel. Uh, not kidding. Oh, that dude absolutely. Uh, that dude, <laughs> that dude's setup is so cool. I, so Matt turned me on to that guy's YouTube channel and I can't stop watching yeah. his vids. Like just, just if, if for nothing alone, just like looking at his back, <laughs> like just the room he's in yeah, is yeah. like it's awesome. Cool. It's, it's just a cool spot. So that rules. yeah, check him out. All right, let's get on to the books. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Just Games Booking Dads. I'm here with my friend EJ. <laughs> and I'm here with my gamer friend Matt. <laughs> uh, EJ and I are here this week because we have a different podcast called Just Dads Reading Books where we talk about True. children's literature and young adult novels. But that's not why you're in this podcast feed. Uh, oh. This podcast feed is about video games, Dag Nabbit. Uh, right. But we are kind of 
at the end of our 100 games, we have 99 games on the on the list now. We lack one game to make it to 100, and that is StarCraft. And there's going to be like a month's worth of StarCraft extravaganza on this podcast feed. But while we're prepping and playing lots and lots of StarCraft, uh, we're doing little filler episodes of side projects we've been wanting to do. And funny enough... Uh, so EJ and I do a book club with just a, a handful of local friends. And yeah. actually, EJ, will you just tell the story of why we <laughs> chose to read one of these books we were already reading? Because <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. I can't relive the trauma. For format. So essentially, our book club works this way, right? We go and have dinner. We talk about the previous month's book at dinner. We give it a rating. We give dinner a rating. You know, the restaurant itself. We give the the atmosphere of the restaurant a rating as mm-hmm. well in haiku form. That means out of five, out of seven, and out of five because mm-hmm. we're silly. We're silly boys. We're silly literature boys. Okay. <laughs> then afterwards, we go play poker. We go have a nice little mm-hmm. fun little game of uh, probably illegal poker, <laughs> <laughs> illegal gambling somewhere, and uh, we uh, we just hole up and uh, we pull out the folding table. And, you know, we have a few beers as well. Like yeah. we're, you know, we're having a good time. Uh, we And that night, uh, <laughs> we couldn't come up with a book. Uh, nobody had a book to put up. And so Matt and I have been trying to put up Blood, Sweat, and Pixels for a long time. Yeah. However, I had brought up to Matt, <laughs> I said, hey, I want to put up the book that we've been trying to put up for a year. We've been trying to put up yeah. Blood, Sweat, and Pixels and for it never, it never a- wins. It's the way we do it, generally speaking, is everybody proposes a book. If like right. this this particular week, we had just talked about a book I had proposed. And out of common decency, the thing to do in our group is if it, if we just did right. your book, you just don't propose one for the next month. You just right. let everybody else propose the next book. Uh but this one was one EJ and I had both just been wanting to read. So EJ was going to put forward a book. Right. But- so I was like, hey, what was the what was the Jason Schreier book yeah. that you wanted to uh, that you wanted to talk about? Or Sh- Schreier. Sorry. It's I always fine. say his Jason name Schreier, J- yeah. Jason Schreier's book. Um, and uh, Matt started to Google it. And Matt found his new book, Press Reset. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately said that book out loud. And so after the whole voting process, Matt finally realizes after we had already voted on press reset. Yeah, uh, this is not too long after like 20 seconds after we were done voting. <laughs> Matt looks down and goes, oh, no, it was actually blood, sweat and pixels. Yeah. And the because rest I had already were- bought it. I already owned blood, sweat and pixels. I have the audiobook on my phone yep. and I'm trying to. Not have to buy another book. I'm trying to be economical. I'm trying to be economical. And and I'm like, wait, the other one. But no, (laughs) our group follows procedure and decorum. That's right. We only have, we have two things in this world, Matt. All right. We have, we have voting on the correct book Uh and we have each other. Okay. (laughs) And that's, that, that was something that, listen, it was a tough loss to take. um, But instead we did do press reset and we read all about, um, the fun things that are in that book. Yes. So uh, we're covering both of those today. I yeah. Believe. So in actuality, then after the fact, uh, this vote happened and I was like, well, I'm list. I'm listening to Blood, Sweat and Pixels because it's on my phone. And I went to the library right. and I checked out Press Reset. Uh, and if you don't listen to EJ's and my book podcast, I'll I'll tell all the listeners here. EJ and I are both predominantly audiobook mm-hmm. people. Uh, we, it's true. That, it's way easier to work audiobooks into your schedule in general. Uh, and reading for me is something that I I like, but more often than not, it mostly puts me to sleep. Like it's so hard for me to finish <laughs> like more than fifty pages of any book because sitting right. down and reading it 
kind of knocks me out. And just in general, I'm just a really slow reader as well. Whereas audiobooks, it's like I can listen to an audiobook on two times speed and just knock those puppies out and, and get them all in my brain. So I was like, well, I'll get pre press reset. I'll try mm -hmm. to read it. I'll be working on it, but I'll be able to knock out blood, sweat and pixels in a week for sure. Uh, right. Which is essentially exactly what I did. And I showed up to book club only having finished like three chapters of press reset, but having finished <laughs> the book I wanted to put forward, but did not put forward. <laughs> so uh, and then EJ read press reset and then read blood, sweat and pixels afterwards. So those are the two books we're talking about today. Jason Schreier, if you don't know, is a former writer for Kotaku. Uh, and then left Kotaku to go work at Bloomberg Media. Uh, and he is like the video games journalist for Bloomberg. And Jason right. Schreier is known for being one of video games like top genuine reporters. He's not really a game reviewer. And he's not part of that like sort of marketing engine that the video game right. journalism industry is really known for. Uh, you know, IGN is the kind of thing where... I, and I'm not even going to sit here and dog on IGN, but like IGN is known for just being a, a vessel for a little bit more of reviews a show, right? and promotional materials right. and stuff like that. Whereas Jason Schreier is like, I interview game developers, people who work on the yeah. front lines of game development, and I put out reports about them. And he, he has been the source of many leaks and uh, news that executives don't want you to know. He's famous right. for getting Kotaku blacklisted by Bethesda mm -hmm. Softworks. Kotaku to this day doesn't receive early copies uh, nope. of Bethesda games because Jason Schreier published leaks about things going on in their company many, many years ago. Uh, and he essentially wrote uh, these two books, uh, one released in like 2021, I think, and the other released mm, probably 2017-ish. I should have these uh, numbers in front yeah, of me. Yeah, it's actually quite old. Um, the, the Blood, Sweat, and Pixels has been around since I think it was released in 2017 because I was working elsewhere Yeah, and somebody else had actually, the first time I had heard about this book, Matt, was not you telling me about it. Oh, it really? Was, uh, somebody else. Yeah. Interesting. Making mention of it. So it's been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, it's kind of been in the zeitgeist. It's kind of funny because, you know, it's, it's nearly, I mean, this book is nearly seven years old now. So right. like the industry has changed even a lot. Well, especially, then. I mean, <laughs> a press reset is even press mm -hmm. reset ends essentially like the final chapter of press reset is like, and then COVID happened yeah. <laughs> and this book yep. isn't about that basically right so like i honestly i look forward to whatever schreier's third book will be because it's almost certainly going to be a 2020 and onward focused book uh essentially but the the to, to talk about the two books independently uh blood mm -hmm. sweat and pixels was really just like the first piece by Jason Schreier, the first proper book. And what did Jason Schreier want to write a book about? Well, he really just wanted to write a book about the front lines of game, game development. And Blood, Sweat, and Pixels right. is, I would say, a relatively um, sort of vaguely <laughs> guided book about just each chapter is literally a game title. And he tells you the story of that game's development history, basically. And yeah. the, the thesis of the book is really just like, Games are goddamn hard to make, huh? <laughs> <laughs> They're so hard. They're tough. Games are tough. And like the first, so yeah, I, I and even then it's kind of like there are some chapters in this one where it feels like games really aren't that tough. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like sometimes they're, they're like, just this great little thing. But uh, it, I, yeah. what I like about the first book is how um, 
properly focused each chapter is. My right. my, my take uh, kind of as I was halfway through Press Reset was like, I think the the sort of thesis of Press Reset is an overall better one, but I think there are probably individual chapters of Blood, Sweat, and Pixels that I like more because they're just like, this is a single story that I'm fully kind of encapsulating everything that happened. Uh, to, to just real quickly list off all of the games, and then we can maybe go like a little bit more in depth. The games covered in Blood, Sweat, and Pixels are mm-hmm. Pillars of Eternity, Uncharted yep. 4, Stardew mm-hmm. Valley, which that chapter rips. Yeah, uh, it's Diablo, the best, it's the it's best so chapter good. in the book. Diablo <laughs> 3 is a really funny one because it's not about Diablo 3's development. It is about... Nope. Right after they launched it, it's about Diablo 3's expansion that made the game good again. <laughs> that right. development, which is really fascinating. Right. Halo Wars, Dragon Age Inquisition, Shovel Knight, Destiny, The Witcher 3, and the biggest deal, especially at the time, is a game people may not remember because it never came out called Star Wars 1313, which is like this game that was very famously going to be Lucas Games' like next huge thing and then LucasArts was was bought out by Disney and essentially shut down all of their projects were shut down and it's like an investigative look at what happened to the team that was making what was supposed to be the absolute next huge Star Wars game that just was removed from existence essentially yeah and it was looking good too like that thing was on track but I I think the best place to start here is really the best chapter which is Stardew Valley yeah this is as simple as game design gets. Right. Yeah, I, I love this chapter because, well, for I mean, I just love indie games in general, but I really do think Jason Schreier in these books makes a really good pitch for why, like, indie game development is just, like, a much more proper expression of video game development, whereas AAA stuff is just steeped in the mires of capitalism and executive bureaucracy. And I, most of these stories are about a team of developers coming up against the people above them with the money, telling them what they can and can't do or whatever. And Stardew, Deva- Stardew Valley is completely divorced of that. Now, there are other things that the the book is very apt to point out, and, and even the developer of right. Stardew Valley talks about, which is the idea that this is a this is the story of a kid who uh, was wanted to make a harvest moon for the modern era, and yep. he was going to make it by himself, pretty much, uh, g- give or take some help uh, at various steps along the process. And mm-hmm. to do that, he had to have what sounds like the most Complete supportive support. girlfriend in the entire <laughs> universe. He lived for free with yep. his girlfriend for multiple years while developing Stardew Valley. Eventually, Four he's years. able, yeah, is eventually able to do a Kickstarter that kind of helps bring in some early money, and then right. the game comes out and turns him into a millionaire overnight. And that's like overall the story of Stardew Valley. <laughs> yeah, and the like the publisher that he ended up signing on right was just like yeah we'll just take 10 percent, and it's like a great deal for yeah, this guy yeah. who's just sold like <laughs> seriously i think i saw a tweet from him uh the other day that was just like we crossed like 30 million copies yeah so, i mean god that game is still getting made like he that still yeah. free updates come out for that game to this day and why uh not? the the other really cool thing about the development of stardew valley that i really liked and it's something that comes up in pretty much all of the indie game chapters, which there are more of in Press Reset. Uh, but the indie game chapters have this amazing thing and, and something I, I think is fun to talk about with game development mm-hmm. is is this idea that in these AAA games, you know, everything is capitalistic, 
short-term gains and everything is based around financial quarters right and and right. press reset to get ahead of it a little bit uh really piggybacks off of star wars 13 13 which we just said is like this right. game that should have existed and then they just turned it off and press reset yep. every chapter is a is another story about that of like this is like a perfectly normal successful game development team and the executives just turned off the faucet one day and closed everything up or whatever that and so much of that is based around like triple a game sales are reliant on like the first week <laughs> of game sales right and the and like day one sales pre-orders and like the first month right they make most of their money in that first short-term period of the game and and the company is very often relying on like the new game has to sell like gangbusters out the gate and then we got to get teams onto the next project that's going to sell like gangbusters the day it comes out and with these indie games it is this fascinating story of these things that take time to develop their audience and all of these indie games it gets talked about the like long legs of their sales that keep them afloat right. and these games where it's like it came out it sold okay it sold enough to keep the lights on and what what's hilarious yeah. is like at least three of out of four of these it's like it sold okay and then we released it on the nintendo switch and everything <laughs> got better <laughs> yeah 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 uh, the yeah I, I like where you're going with this and like pillars of eternity was a good tra chapter mm -hmm. as well where it's just about like we needed we needed to make that we had this great idea for a game and at first, like the bosses didn't want to kickstart it. They yeah. were like, I don't want to, like, we don't want to do yeah. go that route. And then finally one day, like these guys were just like, no, actually you do do this or we're going to just do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then they did it and it was fine and everything was right. great. Yeah. Yeah. Pillars <laughs> of Eternity is one of those early Kickstarter projects, right. basically. I mean, like the first wildly notable video game Kickstarter uh, that gets mentioned in this book and that I remember is Double Fine's uh, game that eventually became Broken Age. Uh, they yep. they announced they wanted to do a new point-and-click adventure game. They were going to kickstart it, and it made, you know, m multiple millions of dollars or whatever. And Pillars of Attorney was really the same story. It's like all of these right. ex-Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale and, right. uh, like, it, it, you know, Obsidian basically built their back. What, what Obsidian is known as now like right. happened because of Pillars of Eternity. And right. and the chapter about it is definitely like a very good one, but is also sort of like the most solid of just like, here's what the Kickstarter era looked like. Uh, and, and if anything, it's too, so risky. Too. Yeah, it's so risky. Those two chapters, if anything, almost stand out as pretty unique stories in Blood, Sweat and Pixels is a thing mm -hmm. I find pretty fascinating. But I think Jason Schreier even says like at the beginning of the book where he's like, each of these games might sound like well that's a really unique specific thing that would only happen with that right. game's development and it was messy because of all of its specific circumstances and jason schreier and in the forward basically happening. assures you like that's every game ever every game <laughs> every ever game. has the same amount of volatility but completely different circumstances for that volatility just barely makes it <laughs> yeah. it's like game getting released is a miracle yeah. is essentially the way that he puts it but yeah, uh, and then like to juxtapose those two chapters, Pillars of Eternity and Stardew Valley, where it's like Pillars of Eternity is like this really successful Kickstarter. Yeah. Like they had a really good idea. They 
out outdid their Kickstarter. Right. And then there's coming coming along after that is Shovel Knight. Shovel Knight looks yep. at Pillars of Eternity and is like, well, why don't we do a Kickstarter? Yep. And then Shovel Knight makes these more right. conservative goals, like way more conservative. Right. Like I think Pillars of Eternity, they were going to try to make they they like put like one or two million dollars on their Kickstarter and yeah. it like crushed. It was like four mil. Right. 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 And but they still Shovel used Knight, every dime of it. <laughs> right. And then Shovel Knight's a smaller team, but they're like, we'll make this game for seventy five thousand dollars. And then they barely make their yeah, goal. And yeah. then they have to stretch that money right. for like two years. It's such a good and juxtaposition like, it within the yeah. same book of like you you really expect especially like right. us living in twenty twenty three. It's like I know Shovel Knight. I know Shovel Knight is a success right. story in the end. So I start that chapter and right. it, it really sells that idea of like no Shovel Knight existed because indie games have this completely different sort of path to success and shovel knight got to exist for like two years of just eking by off the back of like four developers or whatever and Uh, then shovel knight ran into the problem of over promising too was the biggest thing it was shovel knight was they were like oh we'll have all like these are the tiers and these and you know we'll promise you all of this stuff right and then they like it ended up like oh we don't have all of this stuff and we promise that stuff for free yep and so, like, yeah. they had to basically just How take their profits keep the lights on <laughs> and, turn it, and turn it right back into more development. Yep. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it, crazy. Yeah. But all of those are, like, big-time success stories, right? And and then the, we can talk about Witcher 3 later. That's another success story from this book. But a lot of it, <laughs> The oh, Witcher 3 chapter is so funny. It is uh, really wanna, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, let's go ahead and talk about it. The yeah, Witcher yeah, just, 3 chapter. Anyway, the, the, of, of, the, of the rest of the success stories, The Witcher 3 is like, what if a group of developers decided the story matters? <laughs> and that's the whole story of The Witcher 3. What if the story well, mattered even a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> and also my favorite part of The Witcher 3 is how they were worried they wouldn't have enough content. Yeah. They, they, they're they the only, <laughs> this is the only project in the history of the world that actually under-promised and over-delivered. Right, like, right. <laughs> no, no other project in the history of the world, I just want to say this about The Witcher 3, was like, uh, yeah, no, conservatively, we'll have like a pretty cool open world with like no loading times. Uh-huh. And like, it'll be like a kind of beautiful game. And like, it'll ha- have 100 hours of content. And then just blow every everybody's expectations <laughs> right out of the water yeah. and we're like actually there's 200 hours of content and we didn't even mean to do that right. like that's insane it's like a, witcher 3 is like just an anomaly of a thing that happened yep. and it's it's great that it exists well and it's so funny too reading that chapter too because honestly like that that chapter is funny to me because it it is so much of its time because it's writing about the the promise of this CD project red company. Oh, they care about writing, they care about all these things. They're and what you just said, True. they're not going to overpromise. They're going to overdeliver on their promises. And then what's their next game? <laughs> Cyberpunk 2077, <laughs> the most notable flop of the last decade. <laughs> Listen, they get one. They yeah. get a free one. They That's all I'm saying. Pass. They get a free one and they got a free one. And not only that, Cyberpunk kind of ran into this is a great transition into Destiny yep. and Diablo 3. Absolutely. Which are two games that were panned. Yeah. Absolutely destroyed panned, at along with Cyberpunk yeah. on launch. And then both of those games ended up getting great communities yeah. and ended up Fine. having so, like Diablo 3 
on the back of Diablo three, they made Diablo four. Right. Like yeah. On the it's back true. of 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 Destiny, they made Destiny two. Yeah. So like if and, they and they're new, popular. what are they doing? They're working on a marathon, uh, mm-hmm. sort of revitalization or whatever. Yeah. Those those two chapters, I would say, I, I liked all right. Um, they they're definitely more simple stories. They're cool redemption arc stories of just like right. I, I would say the biggest thing that those two chapters sell you on is this idea that game development is constantly laying the sidewalk in front of your feet as you walk on it like everything in game development is about the tools are being built as we try to make the game and to to the point of it's a wonder any game gets made at all and especially triple a is this notion that triple a games are always seeking the the best technology possible at the moment which means it's like untested unvetted unknown technologies that these developers are working for and and so they're they're making things with no knowledge of like where it's gonna end up in the ecosystem of the actual whole game so many games are developed under this mentality of like yeah we're making a first person shooter um that's all I got. I don't know. Uh, we're figuring it out. It we're going to just that. keep testing stuff for three <laughs> years until we know what the game is, basically. And sometimes right. those games come out and like a publisher is like, you just need to release it right now. And they're like, OK, here's Destiny. We didn't actually figure out what it is yet. So uh, I hope you buy it and play it. We're Bungie. You care about us. We made those Halo games. Buy our games so that you can keep the lights on and we'll figure out what the game is later. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens with Destiny. <laughs> yeah. And then they like rewrote all of Peter Dinklage's dialogue. Yeah, yeah they re-record everything, bring in new people because yeah. they rushed because the plot of that game hadn't been actually fleshed it out. It wasn't good. Any, like, yeah. Actually, I played it on launch. That's oh, funny you? because like, yeah, yeah. I, well, it's it's weird because I didn't really play a lot of Halo games. Like yeah. I played I played them growing up, but I didn't like, I didn't like sit down and play them. And so like I bought Destiny because I had heard all the hype. I was like, oh, it's a Bungie game. I'll, yeah. I'll check it out. And then uh, Bungie just like completely dropped. Like I fell off that game yeah. within within 10 hours of playing it right. which is no time at all for yeah. that game right? right it's like that's like no time at all i was like i was already overwhelmed with like the loot box system they had yeah. and like the the crafting I don't, I don't even know all of the stuff that was in it on launch I, it yeah. was that long ago but it was not a fun yeah. experience right. but to hear but what was funny was there were people at work like six or eight months later after that game came out and mm-hmm. this is just a personal anecdote of people who loved that game yeah like who loved that game i remember this guy i worked with his name's willie and willie man willie's a cool dude i love <laughs> willie to death. willie's this, this tall slender quiet guy and willie freaking love destiny dude that guy would come talk to me about destiny yeah. every day if he could and i didn't understand a word he was saying <laughs> but all i remembered was my bad launch experience yeah and that becomes a problem for these big triple a studios right. is poor launch experiences turn people like me off yep forever and they like, can't afford it. that like the triple a's no. are investing too much risk into these things right which is like a part of the problem that jason schreier is really trying to get at and, and I, again i would say blood sweat and pixels really lacks an overarching thesis it has no like goal for the reader after the fact it's really just an expose of like hey get a get a grasp of how truly difficult this is and it's I, hard. And for that Games matter like hard. i i think that makes it a really important book actually like i genuinely think oh, it's yeah. an amazing book even if it's like Agreed. it lacks direction it's like you get a true sense of how like if, if you don't know anybody in game development it's important to learn how just how ridiculous this is i think the best chapter at exemplifying that is the dragon age inquisition chapter yeah, because good. it really it showcases the problem of like 
how stupid game development is. We're talking about Diablo 3 and Destiny. They're like making games they don't know what they are yet. They're getting right. the tools as they make them. Dragon Age Inquisition was like mm-hmm. to such a high degree a story of that, which is to say they made these Dragon Age games and then yep. uh, the people over them, you know, the people over Bioware are saying, you need to use the Frostbite engine now. Everyone, you have to use the Frostbite <laughs> yeah. engine. And the Frostbite <laughs> engine was built for Battlefield. It was built for right. first-person shooters. And they were having to just, like, re-mess with tools to get them to make an yeah. RPG at all. It's not built to make RPGs. No. And so guess what you get out the other side? A not very good RPG that sells, <laughs> like, Age dog shit. You get Dragon Age Inquisition. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing where it's, like... It, it's it's really amazing to finally get interviews with people that were a part of that team because you look at the release of Dragon Age Inquisition and and you know these books are really good at getting across the idea that uh, nerds are pieces of shit basically, yes, which is to yes. say like we Thank you know you. we dogpile on devs for a game like mm-hmm. Dragon Age Inquisition. This game was you know Not universally panned. <laughs> But it's like the devs didn't want to make that fucking no. game. They had no, no interest in being a part of that. It, it's it's not how they would have chosen to make that game. And so often it has nothing to do with the developers uh, that, that, you know, wanting to make that game. They're doing the right. best they can under their time constraints and with the right. tools their publisher or owner or whatever has given them. Um, to jump way ahead to press reset, another story of that is there's there's kind of a a singular chapter in press reset, whereas a lot of mm-hmm. press reset actually has like a, a an arc to it that we'll go over. Right. But one of the like standalone chapters is this chapter called Gungeon Keeper, which yeah, is Gungeon about... Keeper dungeon keeper and some of the people who end up leaving uh mythic studios after it shuts down to go make enter the gungeon which is like a very popular devolver digital uh indie game but the story of dungeon keeper i remember this game coming out we're talking about dungeon keeper for mobile dungeon keeper is an old bullfrog famous pc game uh that is essentially like what if you were in charge of the dungeon that the Dungeons and Dragons characters were running in and you wanted to kill all of the adventurers coming into the dungeon, right? So you're trying to make right. as hazardous of a dungeon as you possibly can. And it's a really funny game and it, it had, you know, all of this esteem behind it for, for decades. And basically EA owned the license and just randomly hired Mythic to make Dungeon Keeper. But they were like, oh, but it absolutely has to have really disgusting microtransactions. And the entire development of that game is the Mythic team being like, this sucks to play. This game is really fun because we can turn off the microtransactions. Like, we we are here (laughs) developing it. We're making systems that are really engaging and fun to play. But the people in charge are saying, okay, make that take four days unless someone spends $15 to shorten the timer on it. And the developers are like, uh, that sucks and oh well they have to release it anyways and what happens to that game it tanks it sucks yeah i remember People playing that game i was excited for that game uh even though knowing the mobile market of that time you know it's 2020 mm-hmm. or whatever 20 no it's it's way earlier than that but regardless that game comes out and i tried it out for yeah all of like three days and then you everything you're trying to do is clash on, of like, clans yeah it's it's that clash of clans <laughs> logic to everything and you yeah. know that game like in one sense gets rightfully panned right it's a terrible thing it's it's an unethical video game but what is like completely untenable is game devs on their twitter or their email get like death threats and it's like dude i didn't want to make this game either 
I had no interest in being a part of this. But guess what? It's these dipshit suits that get to cho choose like what systems get put into place because it's either the that industry or I don't is feed my family right. tonight. Like, exactly. Really, it really is. It really like the the thing that press reset really exemplifies for you is that like they they need the money right. to pay all these people to do this job. Yep. And these studios do that is the they here and the just the suits are coming in at every turn and saying, no, actually like we want it this way. They, I, I just hate the mentality yeah. of executives who are just like trying to get ahead of the trend. Yep. Right. That's the goal. Well, the and they never are, an right? They're, they actually right. never no, are. That's the whole they point. are always that's the whole point. actually They're just behind. trying to recreate every trend that has already succeeded. Right. And, and it yeah. like completely from like some other, from some other entity, from some other indie entity in a lot of cases, like, Look at Fortnite, like Fortnite player unknowns, battlegrounds. Yep. Like the, if you look at the, the, uh, battle Royale industry yep. from like 2016 to 2019, right? Like nobody could recreate that. And they tried, yep. everybody tried, yep. everybody wanted to like yep. call of duty, I think got the closest to a successful product, but like that didn't even appeal to the masses. Yeah. And it's just like, but what they talk about in this book is a lot of like the shift to mobile. Right. Yeah. Like a lot of what gets covered in press reset, which is funnily enough, because it's the newer book is actually from that era from like 2008 to 2015. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot yes. more in that era as well mm -hmm. when it was like, uh oh, Farmville's doing really well. Yeah. What and are we going to do? We really like the Facebook <laughs> we... games. Zynga's going nuts. How can we just make everything that or whatever? Yeah. And right. And that was exactly it. Yeah. It's, it's a big shift to mobile. And this game covers a lot of the console games that were a part of that time period where all of these suits are saying the console market is dead and dying and we must switch to mobile so the games you see covered in press reset are still console games but it's right. them having the rug pulled out from them so to to get into press reset more i do think press reset on the whole is the better book uh not yeah. i'm not gonna sit here and like rate them but like i think press reset is the like more valuable cohesive. read and more cohesive thesis I'm really glad I read both. I, I think Blood, Sweat, and Pixels feeds into Press Reset in a really, really uh, satisfying way. My big question for mm -hmm. you, EJ, before we really start mm -hmm. talking about what all is in Press Reset, you read them in the reverse order uh, as I did. And I'm just curious how that like felt to you. Yeah, uh, you know, reading Press Reset first, um, I, I have a bone to pick with Press Reset too because mm -hmm. and when we get into it. But, but reading them in this order really... Uh, I think I, if I wasn't already sympathetic to the devs yeah. from press reset, I was even more sympathetic towards them in my read of blood, sweat and pixels. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Right? And, like and I become, think, I think that might be part of your issues with press reset too, is like, yeah. I do think reading blood, sweat and pixels first, I think they're one book. Actually, I think yeah. these two books are one book and you need to be worn out by the end of blood, sweat and pixels. And then press reset starts up and you're like, we're going to do this again, really? And Jason right. Schreier is basically like, yes, we're going to do all of this again. And I'm going to give you what <laughs> looks time. like like 25 <laughs> chapters of more or less the same story over right. and over and over again. And it does get somewhat repetitive, although I'm really interested in this topic in general. So it's it doesn't feel repetitive to me. But that definitely was the vibe from like our other book club members about press reset was like, 
this is a really repetitive book because it's kind of telling the same story over and and for someone who doesn't yeah, care about game death the, right i i i, I think that's the thing the of stuff that's repetitive absolutely it, it depends on if you're interested in the topic already basically would be would it's be my kind of the point it. that it's repetitive yes. right like part of the point is that it is repetitive like that's how that's what i gleaned from blood sweat and pixels there's a lot of repetitiveness but it's like it is different. It's like, yep. it's like a wholly unique story and yet it's the same framework, right? right? right. Like it's like the same bones are all here. Yep. It's just a, like a completely new yeah. experience for somebody else. And, um, and what I, what I love about press reset though, is it's absolutely better at making each story in the end actually have quite an important purpose true. to the overall thesis. Whereas Blood, Sweat and Pixels is very That's much just like, and here now we will present the story of Uncharted 4. And now it's Halo Wars, the chapter. And I, I think it's good structurally to like know there's an endpoint to each one. Sometimes press reset, it can feel like I don't know where one story started right, and the next one they ends. Meld together you look at we, EJ and I were trying to organize our thoughts on these books and we were writing down the chapter names to press reset and we were both like, <laughs> I don't remember what that chapter was about like at all. Yeah. I don't remember what we were talking about at that point in the book or whatever. Right. Because it it in in one sense it flows much better. It's like a much easier to just read through the whole thing, but it's so much harder to go through each thing chapter by chapter. But I, I would put the whole book in basically uh like three sections essentially um there's a first chapter which is like oh my god i'm so glad this was the first chapter uh the <laughs> yes. first chapter is called the journeyman and it's about yep. war inspector uh which right. like we almost for a minute there this season this 90s pc game season was almost like called war inspectors we were gonna make like some <laughs> joke off of that we were supposed to play uh we were supposed to play system shock which is a war inspector mm -hmm. game we were supposed to play thief which is a war inspector game uh yeah. i might even just misspoke about uh system shock i have to double check regardless war inspector is an absolute legend a titan right. of the video game industry and it's so amazing that this book leads off with warren specter one of the best known game uh, <laughs> names in video games has struggled to get every project he's ever made funded and out the door a person yep. who should have carte blanche to make anything he wants anything he wants he should yep. be jj abrams he should be ridley scott <laughs> you know what i mean it's just like that dude should right. show up to the table he's like and, the, he's and, a godfather yeah. of video games suits, in a way. suits should just hand him money and say make and it whatever you want <laughs> and every time the dude struggles to get anything made Scrapes and it. the chapter just shows you project by project him struggling to let the things be and him being steadfastly protective of the project regardless he right. never folds he is such a fascinating dude uh, and the chapter then really focuses on talking about epic mickey which is like this yeah. crazy thing he was a part of this weird wii game where disney was like warren specter we're going to give you the keys to mickey mouse <laughs> which is and he was like like thank you yeah yeah it's i mean it is insane that this I game was being this. chosen to be made and he like was very fervent on like i still want to make it this uh, amazing game that i want to make and disney is constantly getting in the way and in some ways right. some of the things that plagued the development of that game is war inspector probably told the disney executives to fuck off way too many times and it became right. a really toxic work environment for a lot right. of people <laughs> uh but and then out the other side you get a game with like some problems right you with so, some some issues and because disney's the one that's footing the bill they're basically like 
yeah, you're done. We're going to close the studio. You're out. We're still going to probably make an Epic Mickey game after this, but it won't be you all doing it. And uh, you get your first like Look. studio closure of the book, which is in the end what the book is going to be about. Every chapter is yep. more or less going to end in. And so they turn the lights off. Yep. And how they turn the lights off, but it really comes from up top. It comes yep. from these people who don't care. They don't care about mm -hmm. video games. They don't care about you. They don't care about video games. They care yep. about making money. Right. And Warren Spector makes a point. I believe it's like, if anybody ever asks you or asks me if I could get a game made in less than three years, yeah. I tell them. Right. I tell them no or else I'm lying. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's essentially if I told them yes, it's says. because I lied to them. It's because I needed to lie to them to get it made. Yeah, you know, like right. that's that's what Warren Spector's about, and he it, and I think that's a very candid and honest thing. And it's yep. like these people are pushing to get these things done in like a year. Yeah. Like one one thing that really uh, popped out to me is the fact that like hearing how video games are made and how long they take to get made. It's like there's a Madden every year yep. and people don't realize that it's just like the same game. Right. Like if you well, don't realize I think a lot of people do realize that, but yeah, right, anybody right. who's played them realizes it and everybody else right. might not, might be very surprised because the, they don't touch And the them. biggest thing with those sports games though, is that they, they have to do it that way. Mm -hmm. Like they, they are, they are tasked every single year. The developers of these games are tasked with getting one out the door yep. by, but for Madden, by August right. of the following year. Yeah. Right. Right. And their job is to try and, and make features. So when we talk about generations of games, like this, this Madden generation right. is like eight years of Madden. Yeah. It's like the same engine yep. they've used and they have to, or, or just perfecting right. it year by year. Yeah. So really the game you want is the game. that's like the very last right. in that engine before they move to a new engine, because when they move to a new engine, that game's gonna suck, right? For the fr the six first years. one, the first one of the new engine is the worst one. But after Always. a number, of, basically, the Madden games are a subscription service game where your subscription right. is buying a new sixty dollars game each year. Which actually, a new roster. That's a pretty cheap <laughs> subscription. You know what I mean? Like right. sixty bucks a it's year. If that's the only like I, those games do make sense to me because it's like there's a lot of people where the only games they're playing are their handful of sports games, right. and like I totally get that. And and if anything, yeah, there's kind of a I have a respect now for those games, which is to say, like, listen, we're keeping our solid team together. Now, I don't I don't have an expose on like the man, you know, Jason Schreier hasn't written or somebody else hasn't like I haven't read the book yet. That is just about, you know, the uh, the like the the group that's making Madden games or whatever. But right. I read after the, reading these books, I have a newfound respect for kind of what you're saying, which is like, listen, yeah, we know that these, these engines are actually going to take time to develop to be good. But we have like an excuse, which is to say a new roster. We have an excuse each year to sort of keep refooting the bill. And we will make a point to make sure there's new features in each game. But it's more honest, isn't it? To say, listen, man, I can't make you a whole graphical and engine overhaul every single year that's ridiculous but i can give you stepping stones every single year it would be more honest if it weren't ea right like <laughs> it's like if it weren't ea mm -hmm. yes you're right it right. would feel more honest yeah. and that's really or the 2K problem EA, or or who you know the companies that do run these things mm -hmm. are are yeah are these kind of pretty isn't big ea weird. like wasn't it voted once yeah. as like the most dishonest well, or like the least yes. trustworthy basically ea during the 2010s the had like the worst decade of their of their company's it's career incredible. basically 
I would say EA has definitely come around, has come a long way. They they still have yeah. like bad practices. I'm not gonna about to sit here and be like EA is a great company or whatever, but like they have dug themselves out of the ethical hole that was the 2010s. The EA of the 2010s was doing some of the worst sports stuff. They were doing the worst. I mean, the EA of the 2010s Battlefront. is what put out this Dungeon Keeper that I'm talking about. Uh, EA right. owned that Dungeon Keeper, and they're the yeah. ones who called the shots on saying, make it the most toxic game we've perhaps ever seen uh, with <laughs> right. a beloved license or whatever. Um, so yeah, that we are talking about like their worst years. This is, this is the EA that basically, like what happened is Disney bought uh lucas arts and then also i guess like in at some point they then said ea you get to make our star wars games like right. ea is in charge of the star wars games and so then recently we've started to see like star wars jedi survivor and star wars right. rogue squadrons which are like you look now better, those better are good games like hey <laughs> these these are much more ethical competently right. built games than yeah the battlefront of like three or four years ago or whatever right. and, and and the the dead period of basically like no games coming right. out or whatever of no star wars games yeah. too like for like a long period exactly there was like a weird there was a weird dead zone of right. no star wars games which is like what maybe in the top three ips in the yeah. world yeah and we just had nothing <laughs> right yeah and it was just nothing yeah the rest of press reset uh, is really telling two stories and the like fallout and tangents based off of those two stories and those two stories are bioshock infinite and the like right. rise and fall of irrational games and right. sort of its subsidiaries or or uh you know sister studios or mm -hmm. the india studios that were built off the backs of the people that were surviving the fallout of irrational games and that's like right. one big chunk of the book and the second big chunk of the book is the story of kingdoms of amalur reckoning and for everybody who <laughs> knows what i'm talking about they know what i'm talking about and everybody who doesn't right. know what i'm talking about we will get into it but basically the fall of kurt schilling and 38 studios and a bunch of companies that sort of like were a part of that development and everything but let's start with the irrational game stuff and and basically the story of ken levine and bioshock which uh really i mean the warren specter stuff really is the prequel <laughs> to that which is to say yeah that's warren more Spector, of a framework for what we're right, going to be getting into because warren specter makes itself. a bunch of these uh these games and Bioshock is essentially being like, we want to make a Warren Spector game. Ken Levine <laughs> goes, I'd like to make one of those games that Warren Spector right. made. Uh, and that is what Bioshock is. And then Bioshock 2 uh, is, you get a chapter in this book uh, called Rafting Upstream, which is really mm -hmm. about the team that was tasked with making Bioshock 2. They wanted to yep. make a bunch of different games and it's like, you're making Bioshock 2 anyways. And they're like, all right, well, we'll make the best goddamn game we can uh, under those yeah. pretenses. And guess what? Bioshock 2 is a pretty great game in its own right. It. Coming off the back of Bioshock 1, it is like a testament to a team that was just tasked with doing something they didn't really care to do and made and a solid product anyways. And what were the, what was their reward? shut down right after making it anyways <laughs> uh and bioshock infinite uh you know comes after that but it's technically like the tr the chapter before that which is to say bioshock infinite is this thing of um how do i put this ken levine uh, a lot of stuff has come out over the years that ken levine sucks uh really oh. bad he's a bad manager uh he's probably yeah. a pretty brilliant mind when it comes to game design 
but he's a horrible task manager. He's a horrible producer. He's not good at understanding deadlines to the extent that he brags about his inability to properly follow any deadlines to the detriment right. of the teams beneath him. Uh, he believes it is a requirement that a game just sort of float vapidly for three years and then crunch for two years. And if you don't know what crunch is, crunch is the very common video game practice of working for like 90 hours a week, sleep at the studio more than 90 hours a week or whatever, right. uh, uh, to try to get the game out by its targeted deadline that it's supposed to come out on. And Ken Levine is kind of like, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's how video games are made. You don't do shit for three years. You sort of fart around and then you kill your workers. Somebody hurt Ken Levine when he was young yeah and now uh <laughs> he has he's to hurt everybody, everybody else, else. <laughs> right so that's kind of how that works this um, is such a critical setup though too we'll eventually talk about the final chapter of this book but i do think this ken levine story of him thinking this is the best way to make games is such an interesting example to set right we're saying what we're really saying about game development especially triple a game development is that there's a period where you're trying to feel out the systems of a game, right? You're just trying to see what it maybe is. And what during, can we do? Right. What is the right? It's like what are the possibilities? What are you expecting us? What what could we make this game to be? And during that time, you don't need a 250 person studio, right? You you need a team of like depending on the scope of the thing, let's say 50 people just sort of hashing out ideas. And right. then towards the end, you got to really ramp up and hire 250 people to like get the game out the door. The problem is what happens after you ship that game well you go back to just needing 50 people so 200 people right. have to lose their jobs no more jobs and that is the part that really really sucks and in bioshock infinite's case the worst thing that happened is these bioshock games are built off of the status of ken levine if you were like paying attention to games journalism in the late 2000s early 2010s like ken levine was a god was like a video game you know he is the next war inspector he is this brilliant person and he's the one who is getting kind of carte blanche with any game he wants to make he kind of just gets whatever he wants and the problem right. with bioshock infinite is that game comes out uh is kind of critically not beloved uh sells just fine relatively yeah, speaking it does, it does fine it does fine but the big problem is Ken Levine goes, I don't want to work on a game this big as my next game. I want to work on a small game. And his parent company goes, okay, then we'll fire everybody and we'll just give you a small team. And right. like that makes sense from Ken Levine's perspective, right? The story being told right. here is like, yeah, that's what Ken Levine wants to do. He wants to work on these smaller projects. Look at all the indie stories Jason Schreier has told us about of these smaller teams work a lot of years on a project they really stand behind and love and they come out the other side with an amazing thing. And Ken Levine is kind of saying, I want to go back to those days. I'm sick of this like really stupid AAA thing. And like I can understand that desire. It just sucks that the people in charge their answer to that is cool. Then we'll fire everybody and just make them go find new jobs. It's this this problem isn't I guess this is where I can kind of jut in with my problem with press reset mm -hmm. this problem isn't unique to video games right and i think i think part of my issue with with this book is it doesn't do enough of 
finding the people who are responsible and yeah. holding them accountable like yeah. we should, you know, right. like I want these people's heads on blocks. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> I want to know, yeah. I want to know where these people are. Like right. I want to know yeah. who these executives are. I want to know what they're doing. And there's so much in this book of, and like, this is somehow going to sound like a defense of Ken Levine. Right. It's not, but it's just like in Ken Levine, what's he supposed to do? You yeah, know, right? What 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 else is he supposed to do? He didn't tell the studio the, to right. remove two hundred jobs. He just exactly. said, "I want to go do something else." I want to do something yeah. else, and that was interpreted as you need to get rid of all of these jobs. And yeah. it's like, okay, like that's not really that what the interpretation should be. It's right. these people who, I guess, just have money. Right. I don't know how you get money, but somebody tell me how you get money <laughs> like these people have yeah. money. Uh, and, I'll tell you and, how. You ha- you you are an executive in the most lucrative media and, uh, you know, thing that exists. Video games are the most profitable right. media enterprise that exists right now. It's insane. And that's, that's what makes it so much about. more frustrating to read these stories of developer after developer after developer where it was like, yeah, I can't buy a house. I had to move from this state to that state to this state. I've moved. I've lived in three different states in two years. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I get paid okay, but I work 90 hours a week and then I get fired and have to find a new job every six months or whatever it is. And it, it's, it's this idea that all of the money is getting flushed upward on these games and it sucks. And it's I like, agree with you be that I, I wish this book like had had a chapter where Jason Schreier interviewed Ken Levine and was like, right. what? and was like, and it's like, obviously you, are you responsible for some of this? Like, right. should you be responsible for all of these people losing these jobs or whatever? And it's not just like, it's not just that case. Like I, I, you know, I think the thing that you and I, and we talked about this earlier today. And the thing that I said at book club about press reset is we really want to read Jason Schreier's book 30 years from now. Yeah. Whatever right. Jason Schreier releases in the summer of 2053 is the <laughs> book I want to, I want right. to read uh, yeah. because that's, that's going to be his retirement book. That's where he's going to burn some stuff down. Right. Because right now he's still a journalist and he's got to uphold a lot of integrity, which credit to him. He writes an incredible book here while also kind of beating around the point in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because like I said, I work for a major corporation you think I am blind to the people that are are making all of the money right. on the backs of of my associates, right. of associates that work on, under under me, yeah. or associates that work on my team or in my department? Do you think I'm blind to all of the all of that stuff? Right. Like it's 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 so it's so silly. Like I I work for a corporation that is very aggressive on those things too. Right. Who is who or very known. For yeah. restructuring and and firing people yeah. at at a base level, um, especially locally, and so it's not it's not something that I am I am uh, you know I am blind to, and it's it's something that I wish I had more insight on what goes in yeah. to those things, and and for this book not to really cover that part of it, cover the part where it's like, and this is what goes into those decisions, right. and if 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 it really is as simple as money, then then like it doesn't feel like a valid enough reason. There's got to be something more yeah. to what these executives are seeing in these studios right. to fully understand exactly what the future holds for video games and how we can combat it. Now, mm-hmm. to, Schreier, or to Schreier's like whole thesis, he does end up covering it at the very end of this book, which right. we're still going to get to. Right. But, um, you know, about 
like what the future could look like mm -hmm. and how we could progress going forward right. in order to combat these these studio closures that are just we're just getting rid of game devs is right. essentially what it is you're you're entering a volatile in industry if you're a game dev and I, I would like to hear the story of of studios that are actually m more successful than these yeah, right. because these these stories are scary. If this is the story of every studio, eventually, I think it then is. It's like <laughs> it, then it, it's I, then yeah. What what are, what are they doing? It seems like a it seems impossible. You're never right. going to do anything. It, it's a very rare thing to have a studio that is significantly more stable than anything in here. Uh, the the last thing to cover within this book that I think will connect us to to all of this is the that last arc is about the story of 38 studios which is started yeah. by kurt schilling former professional <laughs> baseball player uh who right. decided he wanted to make a an, a world of warcraft killer and these chapters were so fascinating to me because i remember all of this happening but i did I not read enough about it to know what was going on behind the closed doors and probably was like i mean i think a lot of these details honestly were slightly accessible to me at the time and i just wasn't looking at them but the big yeah. thing here was uh kurt schilling tried to start these companies and credit to him it sounds like he did try to be like a genuinely good boss he really he, did he tried actually. to pay people well <laughs> like he tried to give people good benefits he yeah. you know he i think a lot of it is that kind of thing where it's like he I, I do not think Kurt Schilling is the kind of guy who wants unions, but he tried to be the guy who's oh. like, hey, listen, you don't need unions. I'm going to pay you so well, blah, blah, blah. That's all not proven out <laughs> by the story of 38 Studios because basically he burns through all of their money. Uh, I, I, if anything, I'm yeah. not going to like go into the details of this one, but basically he borrows a bunch of money from the state of Rhode Island yep. and uh, <laughs> still fails. But the, <laughs> my, my most favorite part of this section of the book is to, is the section where they, they're making this kingdoms of Amalur game and to try to foot the bill, they buy a different studio that's working on a fantasy role-playing game and just to keep the lights on, they put out Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. And the thing everybody sort of, I, and I remember this, that game came out and people were like, this is a good game. Like th this is, there's good yeah. combat to this game. There's good stuff inside of this. It's just kind of a dumb plot, kind of a dumb world. It's kind of a dumb whatever. There's a lot Didn't of- Didn't hire writers there's, for this there's, one. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of issues to this, but like actually right. dude, actually dude, the combat is like pretty good. Or like the, <laughs> you know, the leveling system is pretty good. It's like a game right. worth playing. It's a solid seven out of 10 kind of game or whatever. And that studio that made that game that just sort of got mm -hmm. hired to slap the Kingdoms of Amalur coat of paint on it, right? they got completely caught up in the rest of this 38 series. The, 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 the saddest story told in any of these things is that company gets greenlit to make a Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning 2. Uh, they're yep. still sort of under the umbrella of 38 Studios, but they are a proven RPG-making company. And if they can make a second game with now the sort of staying power that having an ip to, like oh it's it's mm -hmm. a it's the number two game and people kind of like the first one so maybe that second one can be better they had a deal being signed the executives of the publisher that was going to bring them on take two interactive were flying out to come see them and sign the deal and make kingdoms of amalur 2 reckoning a thing and the day the news dropped that 38 studios was maybe not solvent 
and the governor or whatever of Rhode Island comes out and yep. is like, we're trying to keep stu- 38 Studios solvent. And everybody with anything attached to anything related to Kings Left. of Amalur was like, oh, solvent? That's not the word we like That's to hear. That's not good. Goodbye, everybody. And this company uh, gets completely shut down, even though they're like a proven amazing team of developers just because their name is attached to this other horrible financial disaster all of it has to go under and it's so sad it's so sad it's and that's the story of a lot of different i mean lucasarts in back in blood sweat and pixels Mm -hmm. uh there there are other stories in press reset you should both you should check out both of these books i think uh, overall matt and i feel uh, positively about both of them and yeah. like I said my bone to pick with press reset is just more of like a groan like it's more of a just like I want I want more I yeah. want to know more about this this conversation that's happening between these directors because it's like to me it feels like these directors these people are like yep and then they came to me and they said this is over and then yeah. I left it's like that's not how that conversation went. right they didn't sit you down in a room for two minutes and say oh uh, this is over bye like yeah. you sat there in that room what was that conversation? Mm-hmm. What are they talking about? You right. know, where are they going with their mind? You know, yeah. I, I just feel like there's more to it. But uh, I do want to talk about Halo Wars for a second. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Go back. Because this is a fascinating one. Yeah, yeah. So this is in Blood, Sweat and Pixels. Yeah. Back in Blood, Sweat and Pixels, they talk about Halo Wars, which is kind of similar to some of the stories we actually hear in Press Reset. Halo Wars is the Press Reset chapter yeah. of Blood, Sweat and Pixels, yeah. which is... These studios who don't really want to work together yeah. <laughs> end up just like getting bought and like forced right. to do something, right? right? Like, Shoved together it, and like you two exactly. kiss and make this game and they're both like, I want to make this game. And the other one's like, well, we want to make this game. And they just right. can't agree on anything. They're they're not getting to make the project they want to make. I remember Halo Wars coming out and I'm not very good at RTSs. I kind of loved Halo Wars and yeah, it's a game I wanted to revisit. Good. I want to check it out again to see if for me it stands up. It is not a game for fans of RTS games because it's not fast <laughs> yeah. or twitchy and all the things they want. But right. it, I think it is a game for people like me that like have 30 APM and only use the mouse when they play Age of Empires <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. I kind of love Halo Wars. Well, Halo Wars is great because it's made by those Age of Empires exactly. folks, right? Yep. So that's what's cool about Halo Wars. They know what you need. They know what... Uh, but the thing about Halo Wars... So I just got to tell this story because it's insane. Yeah. But essentially, Microsoft buys Ensemble Studios, right? And they're like, we got you now. You make our own RTS game or uh, or whatever, right? And then they're like, we're going to pair you with Bungie. Yeah. <laughs> And nobody, like, tell, nobody tells Bungie before this. Nobody they, no, no, no. Ensemble Studios is making Halo Wars for like kind of a while. And then there's a yes. sit down meeting where they're like yep. told to present the game they've built a good skeleton for yep. to Bungie. And, and the meeting Bungie ends with Bungie being like, stared. no, we didn't want anybody to make. No, well, I mean, if we're, if anybody's going to make it, we'll make it. We don't want these yep. people to make it. And the, the, the people but at Ensemble Bungie- have to just be like. Oh, oh, you didn't yeah. know <laughs> what you didn't know. And then like the bungee people were like, then totally cool. Like they were just like, yeah, yeah. oh, all right. Yeah. Like, well, well, I guess you're since you're making it already. This yeah. is the lore of the universe. Right. Thank that. goodness. They're they like, now listen, out on our, it. <laughs> our one stipulation is you can't use Master Chief, which is the funniest <laughs> part of the whole book is the fact that the one thing you can't use in the Halo universe yeah. is Master Chief because he's sacred. Right. Like he's such a sacred oh, person. But yeah, so Halo Wars gets made and the other bonkers thing about halo wars is the entire team of age of empires 2 like the entire entire like uh 
a veteran yeah. development team right. was working on Age of Empires online, like yeah. making Age of Empires 2 online and like capable, right. right? And so they had nobody to make Halo Wars yep. and they had to do it in a different engine. And so they had to rewrite all of the RTS code, basically, <laughs> that they that even though they have it, like they have right. developers who know how to do it and have done it for years. And they're like, actually, Microsoft we have, to, give it, we give have a whole resources. new team of people that has to figure out how to make, make pathing work in yep. RTS games, which is like an insane task. The like hardest if you've part ever of played RTS, RTS yeah. right? Right. So it's just it's such a funny chapter because it's such a press reset chapter. Yeah. Where it's like it, it goes in perfectly with like 2K Marin, for instance, where yeah. it's like a studio that just like was making bangers. Right. Like straight up shelling out bangers. Yep. And then like they had to work with a couple other studios because 2K told them they had to. Right. And then all of a sudden 2K Marin is actually the studio that gets shafted, yep. even though they were the ones who were like who making like hits. carried 2K right. to like greatness yeah. at the time. So the the story you get in the end and the final chapter is definitely like the best thing that comes out of these two books together like it's such a great final point to make which is jason schreier is like all right let me tell you what my solutions are i've been telling you it's it's a lot of books about problems or i mean chapters about problems right it's it's, it is a long list where by the end you're like wow this yeah this all sucks what's your point okay and by the end of blood sweat and pixels there isn't one and by the press by, by the end of press reset he finally gives you his point and hey, guess what? It's unionization. Yay, we did it, everybody. We the did it. Unionized. Unionized. It actually goes deeper than that, though, in, in a really fascinating way. And uh, I want to talk about my old career uh, in this yeah. to, oh, to get yeah, into this. I used to work in the film industry. Mm-hmm. And the film industry is notably um, union-based. Uh, IOTSE is the main one. Uh, the Stage Workers Union uh, controls most of the jobs that you'll see on any uh, union-based gig. There are a few other unions, two of which are on strike right now, uh, the Screenwriters Guild and the uh, the Screen Actors Guild, mm-hmm. uh, or the Writing Guild of America and the Screen... Uh, mm-hmm. Anyways, so those two are on strike uh, because they're trying to fight for more of the basically money that comes from streaming platforms. The the Netflix and all of them are hoarding all of the profits uh, and not passing any of it along to writers or actors and whatnot. Uh, regardless of all of that stuff, uh, the reason films are a union-based uh, workforce makes a lot of sense in the context of video games as well, which is to say every film that gets made is an LLC. The, the film... By itself, like you can know that Paramount Pictures exists, right? But the studio system really is its own thing. And the vast, vast, vast majority of films is each film is its own little corporation that just exists for the few months that that movie gets made or whatever. Um, So when I was working in film, I filled out W9s left and right. I got... (laughs) Uh, the the number of forms I had to fill out to do my taxes would terrify you. I used to have to do like 20 different tax forms oh because I got paid for 600 bucks by this person and this company paid me this. But it's it's just all bullshit freelance labor, right? Uh, but the advantage to all of this is you have workers that get skill like get trained and and gain skills in their particular little thing. And of course, Paramount doesn't just like hire a full-time staff of everybody that then jumps from project to project to project. That is such an inefficient way to do all of this. Whereas instead, 
If you just have either unions with collective bargaining agreements that then represent the people who you would be hiring on to do right. your jobs, the alternative that Press Reset puts forward while also saying unions would be a great way to solve this, their, their alternative is uh, essentially how a lot of things can work in like smaller states like Arkansas, where I have worked in the film industry and uh, other non-union states, basically. Arkansas union jobs don't come to Arkansas. That's just not how that works. And even when I uh, <laughs> lived and worked in Portland, most of the jobs I worked on, or I, sorry, all of the jobs I worked on were non-union because I'm not a union worker and I can't work on a union set <laughs> uh, given the context of how I was working you can get I, I was a, a production assistant for a while too and that's when you can like I, there's not a union for production assistants and so right. you would work on union jobs and everybody else the camera crew and everybody else would be a union worker and then all of us production assistants weren't or whatever but a, a lot of what happens in in small states and stuff is like you kind of just build up a team of people and it's a little bit less formalized than this but like in Arkansas I know the art people. I know the art design people to call. And it's not just like, yeah, I know a few people that do art. It's like, no, 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 no. I know the six people that work together perfectly. They have their systems in place. When right. when Mitchell is the art director and James is the prop master and Matthew is the onset decorator, shit gets done and everything happens perfectly it is all a fluid system <laughs> those and are those guys. three are amazing at training up people under them to eventually fill their roles on other projects and all of that stuff right right and so that is to say like you have these little outfits that recognize no i'm not going to have employment i'm not going to work at one place forever but our team looks after each other and we get on the projects we want to get on and we you know we sign for that and the final chapter of this book tells the story of a, a studio called Disbelief Studios that right. is born out of that same idea, which is like this group that had, you know, cubicles all together. And they were just really good at like some of the finishing touches stuff. Like, hey, we know how to get stuff onto all the platforms. We're not doing the flashy game design stuff, but we can get your game onto PS4 and the Switch and the PC and the Xbox, you know, one or whatever. Uh, and they started their own company that just does that. <laughs> with we all pay of with, us they, to do our you, special you just job. hire us. Yeah, we do our special little thing. And then we thing. don't get fired from you. Right. We just are paid by you. And then we do yep. your project. No questions asked because right. that's the contract. And then when we're done with it, we will move on to right. the next project. And my favorite part of that section that he's talking about too is it also helps protect the people that are working on that thing because what happens right. when you work just for EA is EA says, hey, we need you to have this localized to Chinese in two weeks. And right. you just have to try to figure out if you can do that. Whereas if EA yeah. has to go to localization Chinese studio and say, hey, we want to hire you to contract to localize this in Chinese. You as the company go, OK, that will take us two months, period. <laughs> and if you can't accept those terms you don't get to hire us. We go to someone yeah. else who will, and we just right. operate that we way. We just continue to operate. <laughs> we accept the contracts right. that make sense for our business. Exactly. These are the projects we're working on right now. You can even show them. You can say, as the company, as the team of 10, 15 people, right. you can say, this is what I, we're working on. This is what we have. Yeah, I, I can't give you any more than this yep. right now. Right, and then you don't own it, me, so you don't right. get to you fire don't own me. me. You don't get to do anything else. Don't I, this own is me. this is what the work takes. And if anything, like that's the point of this kind of company, or especially of what unions do, 
is the like the reason a union bargains for the employees is because it's like the people doing the work know how long and how much effort it takes to do the work right. across all of history the owners of the things and the executives that run things don't know how long it takes to do things and how hard it is to make things they're just tasked with doing it as cheaply as possible and that's the whole point to everything they're doing uh so you know to to kind of go out on all of this i think these books are like actually really amazing for shedding a really specific light on like one industry but that this is right. actually these are books about late stage capitalism and some of the right. issues and and just to if anyone's listening to this and you're like oh man ej are being these leftists and i have my own political <laughs> beliefs that that go against this i encourage you to read these books because it's not like jason schreier is no, just like not. you know holding up his copy of das kapital or whatever like yeah, he's, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's not going that far he's taking a no. measured journalistic look at this and using evidence even from different approach to successes and failures you know what i mean like he, he's, yeah. he's all he's doing is presenting you with actual stories and facts of of like how these companies can i mean like within that chapter he even sure. he's he's got a studio that it was my the team i rooted for the most was this little team of people where they were working yeah. on the combat for was it the kingdoms of amalur reckoning people where they had a little so. combat pit and they were just like we yeah. make kick-ass combat and that's the one thing <laughs> everybody said was amazing about that game they get they get metrics back from like microsoft yep. or whoever and they're told 98 and a half percent of people who play this game love, love the combat and they're like love god it. damn we're the combat people oh, we and did it the we dude <laughs> who's like in charge of that he even pushes back on the like i could own a little combat making company and just have that right. be our thing that we bounce from project to project so it's not like there's it's nobody is suggesting this is an obvious perfect answer that would solve all the issues but what is known especially after finishing all these books is the system that's in place is the clear signs that video games are in their infancy and even though like you can refer to other industries and video games have been around for 40 years, that's still very young based on looking at how they operate themselves, which is to say like an industry- Film has been around for 120, yes. so. <laughs> and and it's far less volatile. There's still right. some volatility, but like the, the unionization has is what has kept that industry you able think they got to that operate. Done? Right. You think they got that done in, in 20, 40 years? Right. No, no, like it took that time. didn't come along until later either. So right. it's like- so yeah, the, the, the whole point being an, until there's a less volatile method of, you know, you, you just can't have an industry that's built off the back of, well, we'll burn everybody out in 10 years. There will be nobody. Warren Spector is the diamond in the rough here, which is to say he's one of these people who's been in the industry for 30 plus years. That is a very short list of people that can say right. that they have done that, essentially. Yeah, the uh, list of people is Warren Spector. <laughs> And Todd Howard, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's, it, it's it's such a short list of people that can do this for a long amount of time because the story of so many of these people is, yeah, I've, I change jobs constantly. I've moved across the country. I've moved across the world over and over and over again. And it's just completely unsustainable uh, and is obviously unsustainable on the face of it. And you can look at 2020 and like the horrid nature of what COVID-19 did and look at the last two years of games releases to see like how bad this system is, right? How, how, how like it, all it takes is one 
problem and sort of the whole system falls apart, right? So many of these studios, even from the publishing side, I'm even I'm saying even for the suits is like if they get one horrible game, they've put all their eggs in that basket, which means like that yeah. the, the the system has to be structured in a different way so that it has more more longevity. Anyways, this was all my way to say indie games rule and I this these books made me hate AAA uh, game development even more than I already Truth. did. I, I was already like I just think I don't really like AAA games and now I'm like AAA games are unethical. <laughs> <laughs> Which book did you like more? Yeah, I think overall I liked Blood, Sweat and Pixels more. I, I like digesting things kind of in, in bite-sized stories yeah. that way, at least in this, in this context, yeah. mostly because Press Reset is uh, depressing. It's yeah. it's depressing for me, just given what my daily job is and right. what I have to deal with on yeah. a daily on a daily basis and the stressors that that are there. Um, versus, you know, I kind of just like hearing stories. Almost, I mean, most of those are success stories. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. In, yeah. In blood, sweat, and yeah. Pixels. Blood, sweat, and pixels is like, yeah, this is hard, but look at like what the good games look like. Look right. What the and successes we, and look like like. The only like the only one that failed. Kind of funny that it ends on Star Wars thirteen thirteen because yeah. it's like basically the only failure in the right. book. Yeah, you know, and it kind of leads in perfectly, like you said, into press reset. But right. press reset has, I think, overall the better chapters to me. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe the single best chapter is the Stardew Valley chapter in Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, mm-hmm. and then like, I don't know, most of press reset. Like the two K Marin story is really interesting right. and. Um, that's the one I always jump back to, but th- there are plenty of good things in press reset. I-, I would say it's, I would say it's probably the better book. And then blood, sweat and pixels is my, is my favorite of the, the two. Favorite one, so, yeah. I'm yeah. hopeful that Jason Schreier, I mean, obviously he's, he's definitely continuing writing and stuff. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hopeful that his next book really feeds off of this one, which is to say like, I do think these two books were one book for him to get to that final point of being like game development is hard and it costs a lot of like human exertion and there are better ways to change that system. And there's such a finality to press reset that I do think whatever his next book would be really does kind of need to be something different. Right. And, and I would really hope that it's, you know, I'd love for him to look at more studios like disbelief studios and stuff and make, make a much more forward thinking book where it's like, here are a bunch of success stories of the people actually changing the way games are made. But I, I, I and I think part of that too can be mm-hmm. maybe looking, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's no way he can't be writing a book that won't be about COVID-19 because that is what has defined the last three years of all yeah. work or whatever. So I'm sure that's going to be a, a pretty large factor. But I, I, my hope would be we don't get some book that's about like how sad COVID-19 was because uh, hey guess what I know <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't need a book to tell me that <laughs> kind of all lived that one huh it was like it's almost like the only sort of global event that maybe yep. is a unifying factor across the world right. um, so um, yeah don't need a book about how sad it is I, I think it would be interesting to see how developers worked in remote environments yep. I think that would be an interesting story and how and how the pressure from executives in remote environments changed, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like, yeah. was it more lax? Was it, right. you know, like how did people's attitudes change? Because I'll say this, like I said earlier, you know, working for a corporation, the attitude around here has mm-hmm. changed, yeah. you know, right. um, there is, there were a lot of positives that came out of such a massive negative yeah. um, that was COVID-19 that like, you can look at it and be like, the industries that we're all in 
like drastically changed in ways that yep. are a lot of time, a lot of ways feel irreversible, right? right. They feel, they feel like these are here to stay. It yep. feels like we're, you know, what we, I hated hearing the term during the pandemic, new normal. I thought that was stupid, mm-hmm. but when you're in a, a post COVID world, you're in a, a world where, um, you know, we have to reckon with the fact that a pandemic could happen to yep. us and could be very deadly, like right. it, like COVID nineteen was, like yeah. extremely deadly to the world population. Um, I think it's uh, I think it's important to investigate some of the ways that we work now and how those ways um, are beneficial to you know more employee centric. Yeah. Uh, and how we can utilize some of the things we know now into making more uh, employee friendly environments, at least in our capitalist society. Right. right. Like, and yeah. at least in a society that operates in the way that it does currently. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd kill for a, a hopeful book amongst that backdrop, basically. And, and, mm-hmm. and I, I, I listen to Jason Schreier's podcast, Triple Click. He's a hopeful guy. So I, I do think that's the kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I would wouldn't say these are very unhopeful. Sure. Like, there's not, you know, these are more. These two books are really objective. They're yeah. not. Yeah, they're not books where I'm sitting over here, you know, feeling like super down. It's right. just, it's just kind of like what, you know, like I wish there was something that could be done. You they, know? they do not make me want to get into game development. That's oh god, for god damn sure. Yeah. <laughs> not that I was ever interested, but I'm super not now. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah it's. It's not a it's not a friendly industry, obviously. And if I had to deal with some of the like half of the bullshit that game developers and game studios have to deal with, like yeah. especially independent game studios that get hired by or bought by these big yeah. companies, it's just like that's a death sentence. It sounds yeah. like so. Yeah, uh, yeah, having to deal with that sort of stress and the people you have to talk to, if it really is as, as simple as uh, they came into a room, told me that. The, my game was no longer going to be made and, and then kick me out of the room. If it really is that simple, it, you know, it's a real shame. And I think those people are the worst in the world. Yeah. Some of the worst people I've ever heard of. So gather you know. your pitchforks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's run them out of debt. <laughs> Old Gamers Almanac is produced by Matt Martins and Hunter Donaldson with music by Knight Corey. If you liked our little show, consider giving us a five-star rating or heading over to patreon.com slash oldgamersalmanac. Yeah.